It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, go to ellerslie.com. So this is part 11 in our 12-part series on uh, life and leadership lessons from Teddy Roosevelt. We are in a Sunday night event uh, and we're doing three uh, episodes tonight. We just did the first one and it was called uh, The Friend and it was sort of an introduction. So if you missed that episode, I, I have to admit it would help you in understanding this episode but I'm guessing it could stand alone as well. Uh, I always like it when my episodes can stand on their own two feet, but this particular one would definitely be helped a lot by that because it's gonna talk about this friendship that Teddy Roosevelt is going to establish with a man named William Howard Taft. And those of you that know American history will probably recognize that name. He was uh, the president of the United States immediately following Teddy Roosevelt. They were best buds. And to see how they worked together, Teddy Roosevelt would not have had the impact on this world had he not had a friend like William Howard Taft or Willie. And William Howard Taft would not have had the impact that he had had he not had Teddy Roosevelt in his life. And that impact, that working together is a beautiful thing that I want us to understand at a practical level in our function as the Church of Jesus Christ. So this particular uh, message is called The Fracture. And we have something very beautiful here. How beautiful and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Well, whatever is the exact opposite of that when there's a fracture, it is not beautiful and it is not pleasant. It's probably one of the most painful things that exists on earth. If you've ever felt a fracture in a relationship, it is a deep, pain. It's not a physical like external uh, nervous system pain. It's, it touches you in the deeper zone of your life where the nerve endings are at the, in the soul side of you and they feel more intensely than even physical nerves. And it's hard to describe that to someone who's never felt it, but it is a very, very difficult pain. And I'm going to walk us through a, a painful thing right now to describe this beautiful friendship and I'm gonna show you what it's going to encounter. And there's a reason why I'm doing that because I had a lot of things I could choose from in this series and some of you could be wondering, it's like, and why did you choose this? Why didn't we just stop right there where they were best of buds and you know, Teddy's involvement in Taft's life is gonna make Taft better and Taft's involvement in Teddy's life is gonna make him better, end of story, all right, let's move on. Because the story is actually bigger than that. It's more grand than that. And it's, it actually, I don't wanna hint that there's actually a, a good ending to this whole story because I don't wanna give anything away. But if you know me, I don't really desire to share stories that don't have any redemptive quality to them. In this particular storyline, I am going to witness something, and I hope you do too, of our modern dynamic of denominationalism that we, though we are fighting for the same cause, can find ourselves very much disliking someone who's fighting right next to us because we don't like how they fight. We don't like their preferred method for dealing with the enemy. And so we find them becoming even a greater enemy sometimes than the ones that are actually standing against us truly. And that is a what I would say is one of the great crises in the church of Jesus Christ. 
I could call it denominationalism. I could call it factionalism. There's a lot of words we could have for it, but it's a division within something God intended to be whole. So the common bond of two great men. These are great men. I mean, it's hard to describe these men without having a bit of awe because the way they lived their life, the way they carried themselves, the odds that they overcame, they're remarkable men, both of them in their own right. But they had a common bond. They wanted to clean up corruption and they wanted to help the underdog. And they loved our country. Genuinely, they loved our country. They invested their energies into the political realm. I have no such interest to invest all of my best energies into the political realm. I desire to invest them into the spiritual realm. Now, I don't want to diminish the fact that they may not have cared for the spiritual realm. I'm just saying my application of this is not political, it's spiritual. So this is one of the pictures I shared in the previous one, just to show the close relationship and friendship that Taft and Roosevelt had. It's a very awkward picture. Uh, and it's like Taft as a sheep and then Roosevelt as uh, Mary had a little lamb character. Uh, and so sort of awkward, but it shows just the way the public saw these two, just always hanging out and loving each other. The dangers of division especially if you're working to accomplish the same exact thing. You see, division is just everywhere. We have division, we have parties all the time, but there's no greater dangerous, uh, danger to division than if two people are working to accomplish the same thing and they divide. Because then oftentimes they're still laboring to accomplish the same thing, but now they're laboring against each other and hindering the very cause that they both set out to do. 1 Corinthians 1 and then chapter 3 and then, verse, and then chapter 11 are all going to mention the same thing. I plead with you, brethren, says Paul, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. For you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. So 1 Corinthians is a rebuke book. It's a correction book to the church at Corinth. Corinth had division problems. And it's interesting because Paul is going to be so clear in the book of Corinth, the book to Corinth, Corinthians, about his opinion and God's opinion on division. And there should be none of it in the church and it's so interesting that we will still promote denominationalism, which is divisionism, if you want to say it that way, in the body of Christ with a clear conscience when it goes directly against God's assignment for us. I understand why the divisions are there. Don't get me wrong. I understand where denominations spring from. However, I also know that the God who has commissioned us to live out the impossible intends to give us the wisdom to know how to navigate through the distinctions and the differences of thought and approach. The breaking of fellowship. So this is the heart-rending story of the breaking apart of the world's sweetest and most powerful friendship. Everyone knew about this friendship. And this is going to sound strange, but this country, America, and even beyond loved this friendship. These are two lovable men. People loved these two. And it's strange, even people on the other side of the political aisle, they may not agree with their policy, but they like the men. And so having them be friends 
was part of our nation as well. The denomination, every faction within the church starts with the vigor and pure-hearted drive of a bull moose party. Now, originally my name for this message was the Bull Moose Party, but I already had Bull Moose in one of my titles and I didn't want to confuse everyone. The Bull Moose Party is going to become a very real party in the election in 1912. It's a third party and it's not Republican and it's not Democrat, it's the Bull Moose Party. And whenever someone is developing a Bull Moose Party, that's a denomination. It is a separation. It's going to create a vast problem in our country when this happens. And by the way, the one who is going to start the Bull Moose Party, it's going to only be present in one election, and that's 1912, is a man named Teddy Roosevelt. So that's where I, where I have to unpack this, because it's a big part of our country's history. And you guys remember this in the book of Acts, the Paul-Barnabas conundrum. None of us really know exactly what to do with this story, we read it because we know what Paul teaches, and, but then we see Paul himself having a difficulty in relating to a fellow believer, a strong leader. So when great men don't get along with each other, Acts 15, then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. See, Barnabas doesn't have a problem with that. He's in the same groove with Paul. It's like, yes, amen, let's do that. Let's hearten them, let's encourage them. It's always the small things that seem to be like the flies in the ointment. Now, Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take it with them, take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. It doesn't say, and Paul fell to pieces and his ministry you know, collapsed. And yet, what do we do with that, right? I think you know, one of the things we know about Acts is it's not teaching us what to do. It's showing us what happened. And we also have the rest of the teaching in the epistles to show us God's heart towards us. I don't think God's cheering on this sort of division. At the same time, this can easily exist in the church of Jesus Christ. If it existed with Paul and Barnabas, yes, it can exist today with us. The formation of a denomination, how two like-minded friends can end up battling against each other. So Teddy and Willie, our best of buds. They have gone through a lot of wars together. They've stood shoulder to shoulder, back to back, side to side, whatever metaphor, metaphorical picture you wanna see. And they have won battles together. I mean, multiple elections, they've changed and influenced American history together. Wow, what an accomplishment. And now we end up with a breaking. So how did it happen? Because what I want us to do is I want us to see the mechanics of denominationalism because it can work inside of us. It's small things that can get us. Uh, Jojo and the fancy shoes. This is just an illustration I've used over uh, the years. I say how people can be so close and yet so far away from each other. David Wilkerson's in New York City and he's trying to reach the gangs and Jojo is a gang leader and he's sitting on it in his home, his park bench, that was his home. And he has some ratty shoes on. And David Wilkerson, you know, the classic, 
uh, country preacher, you know, back in the day in the 50s. He's dressed in a suit and, you know, dress shoes, polished, you know, because that's just what you do. Even when you're reaching gang members in New York, that's still what you do. You dress like a Christian. And so he comes up to Jojo. He really has a heart for Jojo and sits down uh, next to him and he's trying to reach Jojo and Jojo's having nothing. Uh, with this. He doesn't want to talk with this guy. And so he's like, Jojo, you know, I'd like to share something with you. No, I don't want to hear from you, preacher. You're not anything like me. We have nothing in common. And, you know, David Wilkerson's trying to work through that. And then Jojo says, look, look at your shoes. Look at those fancy shoes. You know, I had never had a pair of shoes like that in my entire life. We're two different sorts of people. So David Wilkerson recognizes that his shoes are getting in the way. So he removes his shoes and hands them to Jojo. He says, here, they're yours. And Jojo says, I'm not taking your shoes. You're, you're, and then David Wilkerson says, well, you're squawking about my shoes. If they're bothering you, I'm going to give them to you. He's like, I don't want your shoes. You're getting my shoes. Jojo really did want his shoes. And he tries them on, they fit. And it's amazing, but Jojo is won over by this strange sacrificial movements of grace in and through David Wilkerson, you're going to see a, sh a shift and a change in Jojo. Joe is, Jojo is going to give his life to Christ and he's going to become a huge player amongst the gangs. And this is a great thing that God is going to do. So then the church hears it and the church goes conservative and liberal on every point. And so the conservatives, as you could probably guess, are going to come up with a new rule in the church. We don't wear shoes anymore. Shoes get in the way and they blockade our ability to reach Jojo. So no shoes. So they're called the shoeless brigade. Okay. And they're, they're radicals and they, they recognize that shoes are the impediment. And then you have the liberals who just can't believe that they're being asked to give up their shoes. There is no way that God intended them to give up their shoes. So they believe that God can use their shoes because then they can take them off and give them to Jojo. And so then you have the shoed brigade on the other side. It's like, no, the secret is David had his shoes on when he showed up. Now, if, if, you, if you're thinking as a Christian, you know that this argument is completely ridiculous. It has nothing to do with being shoeless or shoed. It has to do with being in agreement with the Holy Spirit in the moment and of how to reach Jojo. And yet we as the church have a tendency to break it into rules and into a formula which then fractures us as the body. So much of Christianity is fulfilled in love and in agreement with the Holy Spirit, but that isn't the way we function in denominationalism. We try and get everything so granularly figured out that we can be right and we can be so right with scripture that we are wrong because the chief evidence that we have as believers that we are disciples of the Lord Jesus is that we have love one for another. And how are we supposed to show that if we are always upset with each other because that guy's not wearing shoes and this guy is. So Corinth was struggling with this the same way we do. But speaking of Teddy and Willie, it was once so sweet. Doris Kearns Goodwin in her book, The Bully Pulpit, says it this way. Long before Taft's 1908 election, Roosevelt had disclosed his passionate wish that Taft be his successor. There was no man in the country he believed better suited to be president, no man he trusted more to carry out his legacy of active moral leadership and progressive reform. The two-term president, that's it, or is it? Remember what I said in the last message, you have to have a good memory for this, but uh, I said Roosevelt made a declaration he was only gonna be two terms. So this is quite the quote. 
Doris Kearns Goodwin said this, despite popularity unrivaled since Abraham Lincoln, Roosevelt, true to his word, had declined to run for a third term after completing seven and a half years in office. His tenure had stretched from William McKinley's assassination in September 1901 to March 4th, 1909, when his own elected term came to an end. Flushed from his November 1904 election triumph, he had stunned the political world with his announcement that he would not run for president again, citing the wise custom which limits the president to two terms. Later, he reportedly told a friend that he would willingly cut off his hand at the wrist if he could take his pledge back. But he's a man of his word. He's already declared he's not going to run again. So Taft, he's going to support Taft. And he does. So after Taft wins, then Roosevelt is going to head out of town. He, you know, he doesn't want to be in the country when Taft is first starting his presidency out. He doesn't want to micromanage you know, from the distance and say, hey, you should be doing this. He's going to give Taft some space. Wise decision. So he's going to go to a safari in Africa, right? And I mean, if, if Roosevelt's going to get away, where does he go? I mean, he has to go as far away as he can imagine. So he departs for an African safari. The rumors reach Roosevelt all the way in Africa. Doris Kearns Goodwin says it this way. While he was abroad, however, Roosevelt had received numerous disturbing communications from his progressive friends. See, I can feel this scene here. I mean, I just feel it in the depths of my being. Word that his closest ally in the conservation movement, Chief Forester Gifford Pinchot, I don't know exactly how to say it. I know it's French, but had been removed by Taft, left Roosevelt dumbfounded. So, He's hearing a rumor that one of his closest allies, Gifford Pinchot, who is the uh, chief forester, was removed by Taft. So he doesn't know anything else about it. He just knows that that supposedly has happened. It's like unconscionable. I mean, you can't even imagine. And so uh, Roosevelt says this, I do not know any man in public life who has rendered quite the service you have rendered. That's what he said to Gifford if he wrote, to, he wrote to Pinchot, and it seems to be absolutely impossible that there could be any truth in this statement. When the news was confirmed, he asked Pinchot to meet him in Europe in order to hear his firsthand account. Pinchot had arrived with a number of letters from fellow progressives, all expressing a belief that Taft had aligned himself with old-line conservatives on Capitol Hill and was gradually compromising Roosevelt's hard-won advances. Now, you don't know very much, but neither does Teddy. Teddy is receiving these words, and instead of actually talking with Taft, he's going to begin to stew and to process, and he's, he begins to lose sight of the things that bonded him with Taft in the first place. Goodwin says this, Roosevelt found it difficult to believe he had, been so, he had so misjudged the character and convictions of his old friend. On his final day in Europe, he confided his puzzlement to Sir Edward Grey as the two outdoorsmen tramped through the new forest in southern England in pursuit of the song or sight of several English birds Roosevelt had only read about. Roosevelt's spirit was much troubled by what was happening in his own country since he left office, Gray recalled. He spoke of Taft and of their work together with very live affection. He had wished Taft to succeed him, had supported him, made way for him. How could he now break with Taft and attack him? Yet the concerted voice of his progressive friends was urging him to do precisely that. The coming storm. So Teddy is going to return from this safari, and he's going to return to the greatest reception any you know, past president has ever returned to. I mean, you've never seen such fame. And of course, Taft is going to be feeling every inch of this. 
Goodwin says this, Roosevelt was due to return to America. Taft sent him a plaintive handwritten letter weighing his accomplishments and failures as, as president. I've had a hard time, he confided. I do not know that I've had harder luck than other presidents, but I do know that thus far I've succeeded far less than have others. I have been conscientiously trying to carry out your policies, but my method of doing so has not worked smoothly. In closing, he told his friend, it would give me a great deal of pleasure if after you settled at Oyster Bay, you could come over to, the, to Washington and spend a few days at the White House. So Taft is concerned that words are getting to Roosevelt that are not representing his heart, but he doesn't know how to engage in this. Goodwin says this, Taft's anxiety stemmed, he thought, from the fact that he loves Theodore Roosevelt and the specter of a potential rupture in their friendship was causing great emotional distress. So first thing, should Taft greet him in New York or not? This is like a huge reception. Thousands, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people are there to greet Roosevelt upon his arrival. Should Taft go? I mean, he's an, he's an acting president. Would a president do that? Decisions, decisions, decisions. Goodwin says it this way. Taft had been tempted to go to New York and personally welcome Roosevelt home. According to one report in the Indianapolis Star, his advisors had suggested that this demonstration of amity would be appreciated by Colonel Roosevelt and would do more than anything else to drive away the suspicion that seemed to have gained, through, gained ground that the relations between the chief executive and his predecessor are strained. Upon reflection, however, Taft concluded that it would diminish the status of the presidential office. If he were to race, this is Taft thinking to himself, if he were to race down to the gangplank to be the first to shake hands with the former president, well, that would diminish the status of the presidential office. And of course, Roosevelt would know that. Taft explained to his military aide that he was charged with the dignity of the executive and was determined to say nothing that will put a momentary slight even on that great office. No matter how much he would rather be Will, welcoming his, his friend Theodore, he was now President Taft. I think, moreover, that Roosevelt will appreciate this feeling in me, he concluded, and would be the first one to resent the slightest subordination of the office of president to any man. So he didn't show up in New York. Can't you guys just feel this? It's like little things that aren't intentional but are going to be misconstrued. A deeper look into the relational crisis. Decisions, decisions, decisions. Before Roosevelt leaves office, so before Roosevelt leaves office after his second term, so this is in 1908, Roosevelt is about to complete his presidency, right? He's no longer going to be president of the United States. And you know how presidents love to do big things right before they leave so they can be remembered. Roosevelt has one big concern. He is greatly concerned about the future of hydroelectric power. I know for most of you, that isn't one of your grand concerns in life, but he saw a monopoly forming. He saw, was it Western Electric, and I forgot what the other one was, uh, that, that are beginning to like take over all of the riverlands. And if these two companies hold it all, they will control the future of our country because he knew everything was moving into hydroelectric power. So he is concerned that a few large corporations will buy up the riverland of Western America and monopolize the future of our country's energy. This is what Roosevelt said. I esteem it my duty to use every endeavor to prevent this growing hydroelectric power monopoly, the most threatening which has ever appeared from being fastened upon the people of this nation. So Roosevelt comes up with a plan. Via an executive order, he seizes 1.5 million acres of riverland across America. This is unprecedented in American history, guys. If you wonder where all this executive order stuff from presidents comes from, we can thank Theodore Roosevelt. 
This is an unprecedented move for a president of the United States to make. There is nothing in the Constitution that allows for this maneuver. Listen to this. But as Roosevelt states, there is also nothing in it that prohibits it. So he is going to have the government seize this land so that these major corporations can't buy it up. Teddy says this, the president of the United States has the legal right to do whatever the needs of the people demand unless the constitution or the laws explicitly forbid him to do it. Now remember the difference between him and Taft. Taft is a legalist. Taft does things by the book. Roosevelt just literally threw out the book and he did this right before Taft becomes president and then leaves for a safari, handing this to Taft Okay, I don't know if you guys can feel something brewing here. This executive order was carried out by America's chief forester, Gifford Pinchot. Remember the guy that's going to be fired? So this is another Roosevelt associate. He's going to carry it out. So William Howard Taft says this. These sweeping declarations of executive authority misconceived the entire theory of the, theory of the federal constitution, which delegated specific powers to each of the three branches. Speak, speaking, spoken like a Supreme Court justice, right? He is going to become Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in the future, by the way, guys. I don't know if you know that about William Howard Taft. It is, very dangerous, it is a very dangerous method of upholding reform to violate the law in so doing. Even on the ground of high moral principle or of saving the public, the Constitution granted Congress the power to dispose of lands, not the executive. Roosevelt's conservation reforms would have been further along had he taken a different way. So now you have basically the chief justice stepping into the position of president and having to inherit this mess, which everyone is upset about. I mean, the nation is split over how Roosevelt did this, yet Roosevelt's on a safari. And Taft has to deal with this. Taft was 100% behind Roosevelt's desire to stem the tide of, an hydro, of a hydroelectric monopoly by General Electric and Westinghouse. I think I said Western Electric. My dad used to work for Western Electric. General Electric, sorry guys, GE and Westinghouse. Isn't it funny that those two companies are still around? So Taft agreed with what Roosevelt wanted to do. That said, he believed that there was a far better way that this quote-unquote seizure of land should have taken place. As a lawyer, he strongly believed in the rule of law and the path of law for working out one's ends. When Taft took office in 1909, he invited Richard Ballinger to be his secretary of the interior, who would be over these issues. Ballinger, like Taft, was a lawyer. Uh-oh. Oh, no, not another lawyer in the mix. And he was disturbed by Roosevelt's final moves in office. So in the first three weeks of Taft's presidency, Ballinger had released the riverlands that Gifford Pinchot had seized for Roosevelt and returned them to the public domain. I don't know if you guys are following this. This is, this is a very challenging part of history to describe in a simple way that a child would understand. Ballinger wanted these lands to be government protected just as Pinchot did. In other words, Ballinger agrees that there's a danger here. However, we have to do this according to due process. We cannot just do these sweeping decisions and, and turn away, uh, you know, turn a blind eye towards them. Otherwise, what if someone gets into the presidency that isn't going to be marked by a moral framework? You can do anything. We have to do this according to the rule of law. So, he was also disturbed by Roosevelt's final moves in office. So in the first three weeks, oh, I, I read that, Ballinger wanted these lands to be government protected just as Pinchot did but as, but, and just as Roosevelt did. But he believed this process should be done in a manner that preserves the rule of law in our land. So we returned them to public domain in order to properly and legally possess them after a due process of legal procedure. 
Goodwin says this, the conflict quickly escalated beyond the confines of a mere personal squabble into a matter of state. With Roosevelt's allies falling in behind Pinchot and Taft defending Ballinger, the controversy would pit the East of America versus the West, corporate interests against public rights, developers against conservationists, until all the divisive factions at play in the confrontation between Pinchot and Ballinger were framed as the opening volley in the battle for the 1912 presidential nomination. So I'm skipping a lot, but this is right in the beginning of Taft's presidency. 1912 is when he would be reelected, and all this is blowing up in between. The rise of a personal faction. I mean, why would Pinchot and Ballinger, why would that have anything to do with Roosevelt and Taft? It's all the little things that we allow to fester. Goodwin says this, Roosevelt had never acknowledged the farewell gift that accompanied the letter. So Roosevelt is going to receive what was it, a, uh, a gold ruler extendable to eight inches at one end. Taft is going to give him on his safari, he's going to give him this very special expensive gift. And Roosevelt had never acknowledged the farewell gift that had accompanied the letter. But Archie Butt is the assistant or the aide to Taft. He was the presidential aide. You know, he was also a presidential aide of Roosevelt, so he knows them both intimately but who had helped Taft choose the present, a gold ruler extendable to eight inches at one end, with a pencil affixed to the other, was bewildered. It's, it doesn't make any sense that Roosevelt wouldn't acknowledge this. Roosevelt is a very well-written man. He writes letters like all day long, reads books all day long. He's a man of letters. And so it's, it's, it doesn't make any sense that Roosevelt wouldn't have written something. So this is really bothering Taft. You know, Taft has some, you know, uh, acid in the stomach issues, you know, ulcers over this because he's concerned that Roosevelt is not thinking positively about what he's doing as a president. He's trying his best, but he wants to please Roosevelt. He wants to extend what Roosevelt did. He knows that he owes everything to Roosevelt. He wouldn't be in this position without it. He wants to do something that would make his friend happy. He does, but he also has an issue here that is just very clear legally. You can't do that. I'm just saying, you know, that you can't do that. This is the proper way of doing it. We'll still do it, but we need to do it in a proper form. So Taft is going to say to Archie Butt, there is no doubt that he received it. And then Archie is going to say back, none whatever. So Archie knows that he received this gift. I gave it to him, says Archie. And he held it up for the press men to see and sent his thanks by me and said he would answer it on his way over. So Taft never receives a thank you from Roosevelt. Now, this is throughout the entire uh, grand adventure to Africa, where he's writing letters and letters and letters, but never one to Taft, causing a grave concern to materialize in his heart and in mind in Roosevelt's absence. Have you ever had it where someone doesn't communicate right away to something, and you start to fester, and you start to think through grand explanations for it that are totally out of left field, and oftentimes have some great inspiration from the devil himself? Taft has that going on, and what's interesting is all their worst concerns on both sides are being fed constantly by voices around them. Like if Roosevelt didn't send that to you, are you sure you have good terms with him? Are you sure he's happy? And then on the other side, it's like, yeah, Taft is doing all these things. And these, this whole side is feeding this notion that Taft has gone rogue. Taft hasn't gone rogue. What's ironic about this is Taft is just trying to do it legally. He's saying, thank you, Roosevelt, for your vision, but now I need to correct a few things and we'll get it back on track. We're gonna do this legally so it can never be appealed, never be repealed. 
And so his vision is the same, it's just not translating. Listen, this is one of the most interesting little pieces of data, guys. This is a letter written from Teddy Roosevelt to Taft right after he got on the ship, and yet it was never, for some reason, mailed. They're gonna find it in Teddy's uh, notes when he dies. It says, I'm deeply touched by your gift and even more by your letter. Everything will surely turn out all right, old man. And Taft never received it. But that's what Teddy was thinking. And he wrote it and probably handed it to someone to send. He, they would keep a copy of their, their letters. And why it didn't get to him, we don't know. But that was part of the challenge where Taft was reading into everything because he's thinking Roosevelt is somehow upset with him. Goodwin says this, further aggravating matters, Roosevelt could not fathom why no word of welcome from the White House awaited him when he came out of the jungle and met with scores of correspondents and friends in Khartoum. So he's come out of the jungle. Why isn't there some statement from Taft? Archie Butt, the presidential aide to both presidents, is going to say this to his sister-in-law. Everything which is done by either side is misconstrued. He's sitting in the middle. He's trying to translate to both of them. It's like, look, he doesn't think that. No, he doesn't think that. Well, why isn't he responding to this? Well, why did they not, you know, send me a welcome when I got into Khartoum? Did I just say that? That didn't come out very well. Into Khartoum, why didn't I have a letter? The devastation of division, the 1912 election. You see, this division is not a small thing. You see, the progressives and where Teddy and where Taft was taking our nation was very clear. And they were moving us in a way that I would say most of the country was in full agreement with. The problem is these two are going to have an extremely mm, uh, difficult divide to the point where they can no longer talk with each other. They have no relationship. And now it's volleys of mudslinging from their, uh, those that are siding with them. And then they're listening to all the extreme statements that are being said that Taft didn't mean that. Roosevelt would never say that. They still love each other, but they're mad at each other because did you hear what Taft said or did you hear what Roosevelt said? So the 1912 election, the Republicans could win it, I mean, without even any effort. That's how strong the Republican Party was in America. However, when Taft gets the nomination, Roosevelt, with indignity, declares that he's going to run. And he runs as the Bull Moose Party, which splits the vote. And guess who becomes president? Woodrow Wilson. And guess what we head into? World War I. And America is weak at the very time we needed strength. Why? Because of this. This division of these two men is going to sponsor a breaking in our country. We, as, our, as this country was not ready for World War I. We didn't have a clear response to World War I, and it drove Teddy Roosevelt crazy, by the way. Teddy Roosevelt was riding the back of Woodrow Wilson the entire time, but Woodrow Wilson was a pacifist. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that about Woodrow Wilson. Teddy Roosevelt, not so much. And so the way that America is going to handle World War I is going to be lopsided and it's going to be very unhealthy to the point where it takes a long time to get our game on and a lot of people are gonna die because of it. And so, yes, we could have handled World War I a lot better, but we also could have handled this a lot better. 
So the formation of the Bull Moose Party, it's a division of friendship, a division of a party, a division of votes, a division of power. You see, we as the church are not meant to have a bull moose party. We're not meant to just sponsor, well, if you're going to do that, well, I'm going to start my own church over here. We're meant to work together. And when the enemy plays us his way, we divide and we split and we lose that camaraderie and that collaborative power that God intended us to have. So there's a lot of cartoons about this, but uh, you see, he, these two are in the same trousers, GOP brand trousers, walking the opposite way. Uh, and then we have this one. It was called Armageddon. That's actually what people called it. Armageddon, when the two best friends are actually killing each other. And it's more than two divided men. It's a divided nation. This divided the nation, too. You had to pick a side. You liked them both. But are you a Taft guy or are you a Roosevelt guy? The rise of a weak leader, Woodrow Wilson. So out of this division comes a very difficult situation for our country. Woodrow Wilson, not usually a bragging point for anyone who knows Woodrow Wilson's presidency. And yet, where does it come from? It comes from taking our strength and shooting it in the foot. So this is a you know, a little political cartoon. You see the GOP, which would be a symbol of Taft as an elephant. And then you see the bull moose. And then the caption, as they're both sitting there despondent, says, well, you've helped, you've helped rip me apart and downed yourself. Now I hope you're satisfied. Roosevelt never lost anything. Now suddenly he's humiliated. He did this to himself. See, I, I'm a big Roosevelt fan. I don't know if you guys have figured this out. But I'm not a fan of everything he's going to do. And this is one of those painful moments that I chose to bring out because there's a lot of things I could have brought out instead. But to show the, the humanity, I think, is sometimes very helpful too. Because you know what it was? And I'm just going to call a spade a spade. It was pride. For Roosevelt, it was pride. For Taft, I'm not going to say it wasn't pride, but if I was going to grade these men, I'm going to give Taft a higher grade on this one. And this whole series is on Roosevelt, so you know I'm not trying to speak just on Taft. I'm just going to say I'm giving him a higher grade on this one because Taft the whole time was in an absolute agony. He missed his friend. He loved his friend. He wanted his friend back. And that's going to come into the third episode too, by the way, guys. Uh, third tonight. It's the 12th episode in the series. Anger, unforgiveness, bitterness, and resentment, they're really good at destroying us. I don't know if any of you have ever flirted with any of those things. The devil is a master con, and he wants to bait us towards these things. Anger, unforgiveness, bitterness, and resentment, they just destroy us. It's ironic, those that are bitter and resentful, usually they're the ones being destroyed even more than the one they haven't forgiven. The person they haven't forgiven may not even know that they're not forgiven by that person. But the person that is carrying these things, they're toxic inside. So Teddy Roosevelt, question number 11. I've finished each of these messages with a question. Is there any of this toxic stuff within you? Is there anyone that has harmed your life that you need to forgive? Are you a contributor to the unity of the body or the denominationalization of it? You see, at any juncture, we could actually participate in the division. Even though we don't 
theologically agree with it. We can easily participate. I, I know you can just know these things from living in a family. That you could have a vision as a family to be one. To love each other always. To always speak, speak sweet words. Always. That doesn't mean you do. And so how do you handle it when you don't? And for all of us, like I've oftentimes said about my dad, my dad was a perfect dad. However, I need to add a caveat to that. It wasn't because he was perfect as you would think perfect. He perfectly responded to his imperfections. Now that's a great dad. You see, we're all going to have imperfections. The question is, how are we responding to them? Because if we have an imperfection that the enemy is playing on and we're just letting him hit it, hit it, hit it, hit it, it's going to break apart our life and the world around us, starting with our families, our marriages, the body of Christ. But when we have a weakness that the enemy's hitting on and we acknowledge it as a weakness, we're like, okay, Lord, I need your grace right here. Now that is perfectly responding to our imperfections and that is something special. So I'm not expecting any of you to be perfectly polished without any vulnerabilities or weaknesses. I'm presuming we're all of the same clay, which means we all need a savior and we're all vulnerable to the same things. We can feel on the human side of us the fact that Teddy didn't ever write a letter back. We can feel on the human side of us, you know, why did Taft not write a letter to me at least welcoming me to Khartoum? Why didn't that show up? And they read into it. Taft must have changed sides. Taft didn't change sides. But the enemy's not going to tell you that. So you have to get your news source from heaven and not from your enemy who desires to break us apart. It is critical that we learn this. Teddy Roosevelt, quote number 11. Teddy on the impact of the choices we make which is quite an interesting thing to apply considering this is a choice he is going to make. Teddy says this, of this we can be certain that we shall not go down in ruin unless we deserve and earn our end. There is no necessity for us to fall. Yeah, and Teddy, could I remind you of this? We need to be reminded of some of our great quotes too. Have you ever noticed that? It's truth. It doesn't mean we're always living it. But today or tonight is a great time to live it afresh. If you have any of this toxic stuff in you, let God deal with it. Father, we ask for your grace. We ask for your power. We need you to cleanse us of any of this that will bring about a 1912 election in our lives, that will allow the weaker party to be able to be elected because the stronger, the church of Jesus Christ is off its game. Lord Jesus, teach us how to live in true unity and to humble ourselves, to forgive and to be forgivable. We trust you, Lord. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. If you'd like to learn more about Ellerslie, our discipleship programs, or support the ministry financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. Thanks for listening.